Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Last week, an unexpected cooling of inflation allowed the Bank of England to leave interest rates unchanged. But with CPI still running more than three times above its target, has the bank wimped out before the battle is won? And in today's dumb question of the week, instead of hiking interest rates to fight inflation, why doesn't the government simply urge people to spend less? Right, let's get into it. So we went into last week with everybody expecting that the Bank of England was going to raise interest rates for the 15th consecutive time and just carry on its course of trying to slow inflation. But then midweek, everything seemed to change with the release of the latest inflation figures. And then the Bank of England just left rates unchanged the day after. So some people are looking at that and saying, hmm, has the Bank of England bottled it? What do you think, Roman? I was a little bit surprised with what they did, to be honest, because if you look at core inflation, that's at 6.2%, and it hasn't really fallen much. I think it peaked above 7 And obviously, headline inflation has fallen sharply because of energy prices falling. Yeah, so headline's down to 6.7%, isn't it? Whichever number you look at, it's still more than three times the Bank of England's 2% target. And it doesn't look like they've licked inflation. So the reasons behind it, I don't think, are to do with that. I don't think they think it's job done. I think they're looking at the economy and saying, hmm, I'm not sure it can take more rate hikes, given what's going on with the housing market and with economic activity. But they made this whole big song and dance about being data dependent, right? And they were going to not look at their models so much and just look at the inflation data and other economic data as it came in and make their rate decisions based on that. Is that what they've done? Have they seen enough weakening in the economy to justify holding rates flat? I think so. I think that's the real worry here. And I think if you look at their mandate, which is interesting, if you compare it with the Fed's mandate, which is full employment combined with stable money, so in other words, inflation at a certain target rate, which is 2% for PCE inflation, The Bank of England, in contrast, has a single mandate, and that's inflation. GDP is not part of their mandate. Full employment also is not part of their mandate. That doesn't mean they ignore it. Of course it doesn't. But it's not really their job. They seem to talk about it a lot for something that's not their job, though. Yeah, I mean, implicitly, it is kind of part of their job. But there's only so much they can do in terms of avoiding a crash of the economy When you look at the minutes after the latest Monetary Policy Committee, the thing that gets referenced over and over again is the purchasing managers' indices, the PMIs. And I think it was referenced something like 13 times in their minutes, which is way up from anything previously. (laughs) And basically, they just keep pointing to this and saying, the PMIs are weak, the PMIs are weak. Which is worrying because you just think, well, they haven't got such good sources of information. The PMIs come from S&P Global Indices, so they're relying on a kind of commercial survey to tell them about the economy in the UK, which is a bit worrying. Of course, they do have their own sources of data. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. The PMIs actually came out a day or two after the interest rate decision, but apparently the Bank of England had seen them before, like they got an advanced preview. And obviously got quite spooked, very spooked by the look of things. So when you look at the PMIs, they fell to a number of 46.8 in September. And anything below 50, I think, indicates a contraction in the economy. Is that right? Yeah, it's a diffusion index. And if things are getting better, then, you know, it could be at 100%. Or if everything's getting worse, it'll go down to 0%. Most of the time, it hovers between about 40 and 60. 
So if it goes below 50, that's the kind of warning sign. And this was the lowest reading in 32 months, I think, and well below forecasts of 48.7. And it's interesting that S&P Global, who do the survey, they said that this reading was consistent with a drop in quarterly economic output of 0.4%. And we know that GDP did shrink 0.5% in July. So there are certainly signs that there's cooling there. If you look at the manufacturing PMI, it's certainly heading south. So that's not particularly good news. The services component is much more important for the UK, where 80% of the economy is services-based. And it's interesting, if you look at one of the reports, Chris Williamson, who's their chief business economist at S&P Global Intelligence, actually refers to the Bank of England's response to the survey. And he says, with the Bank of England having had cited the survey data prior to its latest policy decision, the worrying signals from the survey of heightened recession risk and cooling inflationary pressures are likely to have added to calls to halt rate hikes. So clearly, even S&P is referring to the Bank of England's fear. It's weird, isn't it, when you think through the incentives here? Because businesses for a long time now have been saying, please don't hike interest rates so much, it's pushing up our cost of borrowing, we're in trouble. That gives them the incentive to answer this survey and say, things are really bad, right? (laughs) If they know the Bank of England's going to listen to it and not raise interest rates. I wonder if any of them even think that far ahead. (laughs) No, there's no penalty for lying on the PMI, is there? But just listen to some of this commentary. It's pretty scary. Businesses felt the impact of subdued market conditions and interest rate hikes, and businesses reined back costs and capacity to stay afloat. Salary and fuel costs remain the main drivers of inflation, even with a slight improvement in the rate of input cost rises, which fell back to January 2021 figures. This ongoing pressure is leaking the lifeblood out of private sector business. So many will experience some relief that interest rates have remained the same this month. So, you know, pretty dreadful in terms of outlook. Do you think the Bank of England just got scared then? (laughs) I just read this and thought, Jesus, we might actually capsize the ship. It's interesting because obviously services makes up, what is it, like 80% of the British economy? Yeah. And the services PMI is now at the lowest since the pandemic lockdown of January 2021. So that kind of is flashing a red light. But some people are saying the Bank of England maybe didn't need that much of a push to decide to pause its rate hikes. It was just looking for anything it could find to stop. I mean, there have been dovish members of the committee for months now who voted against rate hikes. The decision was actually split, wasn't it? It was a 5-4 decision with your friend Andrew Bailey casting the deciding vote in favour of the pause. The other four members all wanted a 25 basis point hike. Interesting, one of the new members, Megan Green, who weirdly I've actually met because I met her in the green room going into Bloomberg TV. She wasn't very friendly, I have to say. Oh, a hawk or a dove then? I'd have thought that's hawkish. Well, she's a hawk, yeah. It's funny how that works, isn't it? (laughs) But she makes a lot of sense. I've heard her interviewed many times now. And, uh, you know, I kind of agree with what she says generally. But clearly she thinks that there's further tightening that's required right now with core inflation running so hot. You know, I think she's probably right. You know, I'd have done the same thing. I'd have still gone for a rate hike. 25 basis points, you know, that's fine. I suspect you only think that because Andrew Bailey voted to pause. I think you always (laughs) instinctively do the opposite. (laughs) I mean, intriguingly, John Cunliffe, who is the deputy governor at the bank, and kind of the chief hawk, really, isn't he? He's the most prominent guy who's always arguing in favour of tighter policy. He's actually leaving the committee before the next meeting in November. 
And no one really knows if his replacement, Sarah Breeden, is going to be another hawk or is going to be dovish. Because if she's a dove, then it really does skew the committee in favour of saying, well, rates have peaked now. I guess in one way, they are similar to the Fed in that they've raised rates so much, so aggressively, with several two-notch increases of 50 basis points and a couple of three-notch increases. So I think they can step back and just look what's happening to the data now. We can't say they didn't slam on the brake hard, but then maybe they slammed on the brake too late. Would that be the criticism? Yeah, I think that's what many people are saying. Same thing for the Fed. They're saying that they were accommodative for far too long. And that just let the inflation problem get out of control. I mean, if we're looking for the data that supports this decision to pause, like what's showing the economy is weak, there are a few things to point at. So again, from the PMIs, businesses actually cut jobs in September. It's the first time in about six months that's been the case. Also, unemployment has been going up in the latest figures. So that rose by 159,000, which is slight, but you know, yeah. in terms of direction, it's showing a cooling in the labour market. And also the number of job vacancies fell below 1 million for the first time in two years. And if you look at the ratio of unemployed people to vacancies, and this is something central banks always focus on, isn't there? How many available jobs are there and how many people are there to fill them? That's now almost back at pre-pandemic levels. So the labour market does seem to be kind of reverting to mean, if you will, and not looking so tight. However, wage growth is still ridiculously strong. Yeah, completely inconsistent with the 2% target. So way above where it was just before the pandemic. And in the UK, it just seems to be heading upwards with a kind of nonstop momentum. Yeah, UK wages actually grew at the fastest pace on record in the three months to July, which was the last data that was released. Total pay, including bonuses, rose 8.5% year over year. Obviously, this is in nominal terms, but even in real terms, pay is now growing. The ONS says by about 1.2% year on year. But maybe this reading of super strong pay growth is skewed a little bit by the deals the government did with the NHS and with the civil service to resolve the strikes. So there was a lot of one-off bonus payments, which pushed up the total pay figure. So for example, annual pay growth in the public sector was over 12%, which we've never really seen anything like that since records began in 2001. And you can see why people are asking for pay rises. If you can't feed your family with current pay levels, then why wouldn't you ask for a pay rise? And so many people have been left behind in terms of wage growth for so long with 10 years of stagnation that you can see that there is a justification for asking for higher pay. And this is finally the chance to get that higher pay. Unfortunately, that doesn't help the Bank of England because they're in this situation where they just can't really avoid, I think, crushing the recovery in order to try and get a recession to reduce wage growth. That seems to be the only way, the effective way of slowing down wage growth. But it's going to be so painful for so many people. I think they're looking at these wage growth figures and are just hoping it's an anomaly. They're looking at it and going, I hope that it's skewed by these one-off wage settlements. Because if you just look at private sector pay, that was up by around 7.5% over the last year. So it's still hot, but it's nowhere near that 12% that we see in the public sector. What do they need it to come down to? What's sustainable in terms of wage growth? So if we look before 2020, something that was reasonable would be around 3%, perhaps. That would be the typical rate of wage growth. This is nominal paid growth, of course. 
And then after 2010, there was a period of very low, very sluggish wage growth, where it was around maybe 2%, maybe a bit less on average. So very weak pay growth on average over the last decade. So maybe that's unusual. Perhaps we should go back to where we were in the early 2000s, where wage growth was just under 5% on average. But even if you're looking at 5%, we're still 3.5% above that at the moment. Yeah, clearly at the moment, it's just way out of sync with 2% inflation. I mean, I know that the bank says with inflation now coming down and people know it's coming down, they'll be less inclined to demand higher pay. So maybe it'll sort of resolve itself. I don't buy that argument because I tend to think people are a little bit pissed off across the country generally (laughs) and are going to keep asking for pay rises, as they should. But at a certain point, you have to think about the profitability of companies. And if you're running a company, you can think, well, I'm not going to be able to afford these higher wages and higher energy costs and higher input costs and stay in business. So I think at a certain point, there's just going to be such pushback from companies that, look, we can't run the business if you have these wage increases. I think the only thing that realistically pops that wage increase bubble is higher unemployment. I think unless people are slightly fearful that they could lose their job or not find another job, then it doesn't come back into balance so easily. Yeah, and the data on that is very clear. If you just look at the number of unemployed people and the unemployment rate versus recessions and also wage growth, the time when it really does slow down is when you get higher unemployment. So I think that's unfortunately the way this is going to end, particularly for the UK. For the US, it seems as if they have achieved something of a soft landing. They haven't had a huge pickup in unemployment, but they have seen a very sharp reduction in wage growth. And they've also seen the demand for workers subside. So it's been quite soft in that sense. You haven't had lots of people out of a job, but you've just got less jobs floating around. I remember everyone was quite sceptical about how likely a soft landing was. People were talking about immaculate disinflation, right? That it, <laughs> is it really able to come down without higher unemployment and a recession? I think it's still premature to say they've done that, but it at least looks possible now. Yeah, there was a lot of banter about it in the latest press conference from the Fed. And Jerome Powell himself looked quite surprised. He usually has a poker face though, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And it was interesting because uh, one of the journalists got slapped down It was all about whether a soft landing was a central case. And he said, it's not central case. And then someone said, so you're not trying to get a soft landing. And he said, let me be absolutely clear. I am trying to get a soft landing. That's what we've been trying all along. (laughs) That was interesting. It's the closest I've seen him to angry, I think. But I think the Bank of England's got a much harder position because of the weak growth in the UK. That, I think, is what really was behind this latest move or lack of move. The fact it was 5-4 really shows that you could argue it either way, right? There's data dependent, and then there's the opinion on the data. And this was all about opinion. And the opinion was clearly that we're kind of screwed in the UK. There's no soft landing narrative here. I think it's going to have to be a crunch. But they're not forecasting a fall in GDP over the next year. The bank isn't, I mean. Not yet, but I think they haven't incorporated the latest data from this PMI survey, for example. If you actually look at their models, the kind of things that go into it would be things like the price of energy. And that has fallen quite a bit, but it is starting to creep upwards again. And once we factor that in, again, it causes problems because there could be a secondary surge, not a huge surge, but a pickup in inflation. 
the oil price has certainly been rising strongly, hasn't it? It's almost up at $100 a barrel again. Which is exactly where Saudi and Russia want it to be. So I think that's the worrying thing. The secondary spike in inflation is going to cause real problems. So things like the energy price guarantee in the UK, I doubt the government is going to want to shell out to pay for that. It's incredibly expensive to do it for the whole country. Thankfully, that's more driven by gas prices, isn't it? And those haven't rallied so strongly as the oil price. But often the two are correlated. So I think, you know, if there was a big pickup in oil prices, I wouldn't be surprised if gas picks up as well. And all it would take would be one cold winter to kind of push us higher. That is a concern, I think. And I think the Bank of England's probably worried about that too. I mean, what's intriguing here is that there is a divide in the data. So we've said that the business surveys, the PMIs, look worrying. Pay growth looks strong. And that has sort of led to a resurgence in consumer confidence. Like people are actually feeling a little bit more upbeat about the economy. Now, if you compare it to historical standards, people are still gloomy, but they're a lot less gloomy than they were a year ago. So there is the consumer confidence index. And that came in at minus 21 in September. It doesn't sound good, minus 21, but it sounds a lot better than minus 49, which it was this time last year. And people are actually at their most upbeat in around two years now. So really, if you actually look at the graph, it's coming back into the kind of average point now. Yeah, people are always gloomy, aren't they? <laughs> when you look at consumer <laughs> confidence. It's interesting in America, it's very much driven by gasoline prices. If gasoline prices look okay, people feel more confident. Here I saw someone say the best predictor is real wage growth. So it's generally gloomy because, as we said, real wages in the UK haven't grown for 15 years, but now they are starting to grow a little bit, and so it's recovering a little bit. Well, there should be incredible consumer confidence in that case. <laughs> but the thing about consumer confidence is soft data, right? It's just what people tell the surveys. But there is actually some hard data which shows that consumers are a bit more confident. So the retail sales figures came out at the end of last week, and that showed that volumes were actually up a little bit in August, which was a recovery from July's 1.1% fall. But, and here's the interesting thing, people are spending around 17% more than they did before the pandemic. But if you look at what they're actually getting for that money, it's 2% less stuff by volume. So we're paying a lot more and getting a little bit less. Yeah, I love those two graphs. The one that everyone shows is the volume graph versus the value graph. So value's going up, volume's going down. So it's like getting less cheesy watsits in your packet, which would just drive me into a mad fury. I reckon you're one of those people that buys the sort of family pack of watsits and pretends it's for one person there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> the mega bag. <laughs> well, I get the giant ones and, you know, they go in one sitting, I'm sorry. So what do we reckon then, just stepping back here? Is this a pause, as some people are saying, or is this the peak? Well, personally, I think this is a pause and I don't think this is the peak. Certainly, if you listen to the Fed as well, they say that there are potentially more hikes coming. I think around two thirds of Fed members are predicting one more hike later this year. That's right. It was split, even though the vote was unanimous this time around. So the Fed did pause as well, but they're sort of saying, we're just waiting and seeing there's more to come. Whereas the Bank of England's not clear. No, they weren't clear. And I think that's another problem with their communication. They didn't even bother to have a press conference. They don't unless there's a new monetary policy report. So I think that's really awful. And it really shows up the Bank of England, given the importance of these meetings to everyone. I think they should really, you know, pull their finger out, pull their socks up and do a press conference every time they change their monetary policy. It's really not that hard. 
So you weren't happy with Andrew Bailey's 30-second Twitter video? No. I've just pulled myself out of Greg's to do this very short tweet video. <laughs> We're terribly sorry about inflation. Yeah, the thing is, he keeps trying to sound hawkish, right? He always says stuff like, we're not complacent. But I don't believe him. I think his hands are tied. I don't think there's that much the Bank of England can do. I think their monetary policy is going to crash the economy and people aren't going to like it, but they're going to have to do it. What do you mean by crash the economy? That's kind of a big shout. Well, I think they're going to have to raise interest rates and keep them high for a long period of time because core inflation is so high. What else can they do? Growth isn't part of their mandate. They've got to get a looser labour market. It is slowly starting to change, but not quickly enough. And the only way to stop that wage growth is to have higher unemployment, which means recession effectively. But they don't want to overcorrect, do they, and inflict more pain than is needed to get inflation down. I saw that Hugh Pill, who's the chief economist at the Bank of England. Is that except your poorer pill? Yeah, you've got the red pill and the blue pill and the hue <laughs> pill. Never take the hue pill. <laughs> it's the wrong hue. But he made the comparison that there are two potential paths if you're trying to be restrictive with interest rates. One, he said, is like the Matterhorn. Like you whack up rates really high, really fast. The economy crashes, I guess. And then you bring them down again really fast, like steep up, steep down. And the other option is Table Mountain, which is in Cape Town. As you can imagine, a mountain shaped like a table like a flat, relatively lower peak, and you just hold it there. You hold rates high and for quite a long time. And I think the Bank of England favours Table Mountain, don't they? They want to keep rates around 5%-ish for a couple of years to bring down inflation. If they had the choice, yeah, I think they would. But the problem is, if the data shows that inflation's still coming in hot and they're not having sufficient impact on it, then they're not going to have a choice. They're going to have to raise it further. They'll do it carefully, of course, but they won't have a choice, I don't think. What do markets think? The swaps market, based on what the FT says, still say there's a 70% chance of one more quarter point rise before March next year. So that'll take us to 5.5%. So the market thinks pause, not peak. Yeah, and Table Mountain. And I think in the US, the market's kind of split, but there's a narrow majority who say the Fed's peaked. Yeah, and the first cut's going to come next year. Yeah, middle of next year. Whether they're right, who knows, right? (laughs) I never really believe the market forecasts here. No, what's interesting is to see what's priced in, because what's interesting in the Fed's case is they rarely move away from what the market thinks they'll do. I mean, you've said that if you were on the MPC, you'd have voted for a hike this time. And I think I agree with you. I think I'd have done the same. And one reason is that the Bank of England decisions have consequences. So we saw that after they paused, Sterling weakened a little bit, not hugely, but a little bit, which obviously pushes up the price of imports. And that doesn't help get inflation down. So I would have rather erred on the side of let's go a little bit harder now. We can always bring rates down again if we need to. This is it. I'd rather go in harder sooner and just stamp out the inflation problem, suffer some economic pain, because I think the pain of inflation is much greater than the pain of unemployment. It's really difficult decision. It's like this trolley problem. Do you crush people by making them unemployed, a smaller group of people? Or do you squash the entire country by making everyone poorer? You don't squash them, you just run over their foot, right? (laughs) The higher inflation. So do you want a few squashed people or a lot of injured feet? This is the trolley problem. And I think most people would agree that it's better to have less inflation for everyone 
I do feel for the Bank of England, though, because I think they're in such a difficult position, much harder than the Fed, because the UK economy is weaker and we have a lot of structural problems. We're still working through the aftermath of Brexit. We've got a very tight labour market. If you look at the number of people employed as a percentage of the population, it doesn't look great. A lot of people are out sick and things like that. And we're a huge energy importer and the US is much more self-sufficient. So there's a lot of things here which are out of the Bank of England's control, but really affect inflation and what they're trying to do. I was hoping that this would actually make us more focused on energy independence because we could see the effect of an exogenous shock of energy prices and kind of wean us off that dependency on imported oil. But that's clearly not happening. We just had this weird situation where one by-election suddenly completely reversed the whole energy policy of the UK government. You know, I think that was a huge mistake. But we'll just have to see how that pans out. I think energy independence is clearly the way to go. I mean, we're a windy island, right? (laughs) Stick up some wind turbines and we should be okay. But it just seems as if we're doing what Pink Floyd said we would, which is to hang on in quiet desperation because that's the English way. If you want to avoid despair, then why not join our community and learn more about investment? Take control of your finances. And if you want to do that, just go to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from one of our listeners, Ronnie. And he says, if raising interest rates is supposed to tighten financial conditions and get everyone to cut back on spending, why doesn't the government just ask people to cut back on spending or else they raise interest rates? Like a threat. If you don't spend less, (laughs) we're going to hike the rates. What do you think, Roman? I love this. This is one of the best dumb questions we've had. I agree. That's quite profound. And I think the problem is that it would be really bad for the economy. It would also crush growth. Because if you think about corporate profits, if people are spending less, then that's going to be a huge problem. But one of the mechanisms of tighter monetary policy is to get people to spend less. It's to push down demand, right? Yeah, demand would go down, but how would you control it? What if people overreacted? You know, suddenly it became like digging for Britain, spend less for Britain. It became a kind of (laughs) accepted wisdom. And then people did it for too long. You know, what would happen then? It would be really awful for the economy. I mean, it's one problem that China have had, right, is that people there don't spend enough or they save too much, whichever way you want to look at it. And domestic demand is weak. So they've relied so much on investment to grow their economy. It is changing now, I think, in China. But I think in the UK, there's a fairly good chance that people would just ignore what the government says, because I think people just don't trust the government and they kind of hate the government, justifiably. Yeah, if Rishi Sunak came out on TV in his like nice suit with his swimming pool in the background and said, you guys are spending too much money, please stop buying stuff. Yeah, it's not going to work. But theoretically, if the government could get people to voluntarily bring their consumption down to the necessary level, would that bring inflation down, like theoretically? Yeah, I mean, if you could do it to the right amount, to the right degree, yeah, that would work. But I don't think it's going to work by a proclamation. Yeah, herding cats comes to mind. But also, it kind of depends what's causing the inflation, right? If the inflation is due to luxury consumption, consumer discretionary, things we can live without, then maybe, you know, we could all cut back on our champagne consumption, fine. But if it's around the necessities, the consumer staples, like we can't stop buying food and washing powder and toilet rolls, right, to bring down inflation. 
No, that's right. It's really the discretionary spend, which is going to be the thing you can control. So we saw this dynamic a little bit around the gas prices, right? People can reduce their consumption of it a little bit, like turn the thermostat down, but that only goes so far. Yeah, we're not going to sit and shiver in our basements and, uh, you know, for the good of the country, I think that's just not going to happen. Has anyone ever tried this, though? Has any government ever just sort of tried to convince people, we don't have enough stuff for everyone, let's just, you know, not buy so much? Yes, they have. (laughs) How did it go? (laughs) So these are the sumptuary laws, and it goes back to medieval times. Could we have some medieval music, Michael? So, we had the Black Death in Europe in the mid-1300s, and that decimated the population. Various plagues meant that by 1450, there were 40% fewer people in the continent than there had been in 1300. I don't think we've ever seen anything like that, right? If you compare it to COVID, it's just like way off the scale. Yeah. So what effect did that have? Well, the massive decrease in population produced... long-term inflation because labor became much more expensive talk about wage growth now back then it was incredible and maybe the first time in history that working people actually had a high degree of purchasing power and it effectively broke the feudal system didn't it that's the narrative i've heard yeah and that worried the elites the nobility so inflation was rampant and working people could use their purchasing power to bid up the price of goods. Now, the nobility don't like that. So they brought in these laws, didn't they? And what they tried to stop people buying was luxury clothing, which is quite funny. <laughs> they, uh, they said that this would be a way of keeping household costs down, but really it was a way to stop people getting ideas above their station. Yeah, I think so. It was kind of two-pronged. So in the 14th and 15th century, for example, in Italy, they tried to stop people buying particularly imported goods like silks and things like that partly because they were obsessed by their terms of trade effectively. Also, they wanted yeah, there to be a clear divide between the hereditary noblemen and women who you know, had their gold and looked amazing. And they didn't want the peasants looking amazing too. But also, yeah, they did want to control inflation, particularly of these goods. Did it work, though? In fact, it did the opposite, didn't it? Because if these things were forbidden fruit, suddenly they became more valued by people. And the 16th century philosopher... Michel de Montaigne pointed out the prohibitions against the wearing of velvet and gold braid did little more than give prestige to these things and increase everyone's desire to enjoy them. Yeah. So again, it's people's bloody mindedness. It's good to know that people were the same then as they are now. And it wasn't just in Italy. So in Britain, we had very similar things. And in 1363, in the House of Commons, they implemented measures to control trade. And the wording was interesting. They said, The prices of various victuals within the realm are greatly increased because various peoples of various conditions wear various apparel not appropriate to their estate. (laughs) So like the poor people are buying the stuff and it's pushing up the price. And even Queen Elizabeth I, she passed lots of statutes of apparel is what they were called. And there were eight proclamations on the theme of excess of apparel. I just love some of these descriptions. So, for example, you can't have cloth of gold, silver, or tinfield satin, except all degrees above viscounts and viscounts, barons, and other persons of like degrees. Yeah. (laughs) Or if you're going to visit the Queen, you're allowed to wear these things then. Of course. You can't turn up for the Queen in your rags. There was a good article in the London Review of Books called No More Baubles, 
which was analyzing a book by Catherine French around these sumptuary laws. It says, craftsmen were ordered to wear appropriate clothes. Their wives should wear cheap shoes. No more silk or silver cloth. No more embroidery or enameling. No more gold brooches, silver clasps, chains or bracelets. No more precious stones, belts or knives. No more baubles. But I see there was a nod to GDP. For example, there was a compulsory wearing of woolen caps on certain days. And that was to boost the country's <laughs> textile industries. So, Flat caps and whippets for everyone. That's the way to control inflation. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.